Greetings and salutations, all you beautiful people, and welcome to another episode of Art of the Beholder, a show dedicated to all things eclectic in the world of art, where we do deep dives into deep cuts and help you understand why damn things matter. I'm your host, Novo Day, and today we're going to be talking about art and film, focusing on Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. To hash it out, I am again joined by Lord of House Church, Mr. Philip Church. Welcome back to the show, sir. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad I could find time out of my feud. <laughs> your your warring feud with the other family that that's you're... that's the thing that they don't tell you about being lord of a house that it comes with these fucking feuds feuds um, oh. falling in love with the daughter of their family. Oh, There's a lot yeah. of problems that come with that. Not a fan. So, Not loving it. Let's tell the good people why. Why are we talking about Romeo and Juliet today? Well, there's never been a modern retelling of a William Shakespeare play quite like Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet, which not only issued in a new era of reimagining famous stories, but also new concepts in cinema itself. And it did what a... God bless them. It did what a lot of adaptations just cannot do. It made kids, and especially young, young kids, finally care about Shakespeare. I'd like to think it especially, es- like double especially now in this <laughs> age, because, you know, this came out in like so long ago now that we had no idea about the upcoming, just, yeah. yeah, the upcoming disgusting swath of awful remakes and reboots. Yeah. So I'd like to think this is another like precautionary tale of, doing right by the source material like yes you can adapt things like you are free to make a version of a thing whether it's been told a thousand times like no one can tell you what to do with art but like just please do it good um and this is like it's like the movie equivalent of like what was it like people said like there's two bands you don't cover like the beatles and guns and roses but this is basically just like if you're gonna do william shakespeare like Keep the right parts intact and the rest will follow. It was the only at that time, it was it was the only third film adaptation ever in film history. So I think part of the history is telling as where they were in cinema then versus where we are now. <laughs> now, before we can discuss, of course, we all need a little background. So Baz Luhrmann's rendition of the story, which he actually entitled in the film William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, was uh, released I, actually, on... I believe it's pronounced Romeo plus Juliet. Romeo, uh, Romeo plus uh, Juliet. Actually. <laughs> it was released on October 27th, November 1st, and December 26th, 1996, in the Chinese theater, U.S. and Canada markets, and Australia and international markets, respectively. It was produced, co-written, and directed by Lerman, whose credits also include the film Australia, The Great Gatsby, the modern one with Leo again, and just recently the 2022 biopic Elvis, starring I mean, there's another, Butler. There's another film in there, but I feel like uh, we'll, we'll get there. Oh, we'll get to that. We'll get to we'll that. Get there. Romeo plus Juliet. <laughs> <laughs> stars Leonardo DiCaprio, Claire Danes, Brian Dennehy, John Leguizamo, Pete Postlethwaite, Paul Servino, Diane, and Diane Venora. It's the centerpiece of Lerman's what they have dubbed his Red Curtain trilogy between Strictly Ballroom, his first feature, and Moulin Rouge, another musical. And it is often considered one of the most influential Shakespeare film adaptations ever made. It's legitimately appreciate what kind of proper genius Shakespeare was because one thing that I hate is just like undo like platitudes and when people just blow smoke up people's asses for like just because (laughs) everyone else is doing it yeah so it's you know 
it's, it is sometimes hard to understand the value of certain pieces of art slash just artists in general. You never know where that certain perspective might come from. And I do, I think that both the timing of it all, of just having that rock star, like pretty, pretty badass cast for the time. And like, just again, doing, doing so well with bringing that material to modern day and putting it on screen in the conversational sort of like situation. Cause you know, it like, it's a play. It's people talking, right? I mean, it's yeah. not even a musical, luckily. So it this is just straightforward, like bringing it into the modern era. So all they had to do was just yeah, pop it into uh, a f- different physical location. And it really clicks so damn much more. Just watching this play out as a regular, quote unquote, regular conversation in front of a couple of people to where not the entire work makes more sense, like individual understandings of certain lines make better sense. Like, it, it yeah, it's it was so necessary. Uh, and it's funny too that being in the middle of that trilogy, that it's the non-musical of them. Um, I actually have not seen Strictly Ballroom. I will also go ahead and admit, um, all I've it's good. most of Lauren's works. Um, yeah. I have also not seen Australia because I I don't tend to be a musical guy. But given how much I absolutely adore and worship Moulin Rouge, um, as the musical that like turned me into being like, okay, maybe I could tolerate a musical if it's this damn good. <laughs> um, which again is like never been done again. It's kind of an anomaly though, yeah. too. Yeah, that's is thing. Moulin so, Rouge. Yeah, but especially modern musical. Yeah, this being the non-musical part of that trilogy, it it's it, it was all the more it was double necessary in that respect too, of just re-elevating a a legitimately like almost stereo stereotypical like work. You know what I mean? I'm just like, oh Romeo and Juliet, like, oh, that's four hundred years old. Blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, it's it holds. Romeo up. plus Juliet. Yeah, right. Sir. Um um Yeah, that's you know, for lack of a better way to put it, he made it cool. He made it cool again yeah. to like this stuff and to reimagine it. And obviously, as as Lord Church eloquently put it, there's a lot to discuss, but before we do that, well we probably need to hear from our sponsor guys. So we're gonna take a little break. We'll be right back, guys. This episode is brought to you by Liquid IV. Guys, if you don't know what Liquid IV is, well, buckle up because I'm going to throw you a game changer. Liquid IV is a hydration multiplier that not only tastes great, but is a non-GMO electric light drink mix. Powered by cellular transport technology to deliver hydration to the body faster and more efficiently than water can just do alone. One stick contains three times the electrolytes of traditional sports drinks with five essential vitamins. Now, I pride myself on telling you about things that I either already like or just use in my everyday life. And I have to say, I've actually been a fan of Liquid IV for a long, long time now. I use it for everything from, you know, just long runs to stay in shape, all those late nights with those after hours or just when I'm feeling a little dehydrated I turn to it so it could just my god set me straight make me feel like a million bucks again and just get me ready for the day so please head on over to their website that's liquid-iv.com to check out their amazing line of products and get this when you use promo code art of the beholder all one word you'll get 20% off your order now if you need a little direction on where to start I recommend lemon lime guys you're gonna love it won't be disappointed so please give it a shot and get more fuel for life's adventures now back to the show okay we are back and we got to start where we always start mr church and that is with plot characters and narrative and uh this film had a fascinating opening i would liken it to a trailer for the film you know, it kind of starts with this exposition and kind of quick cut of a lot of different things to bring you into the world of the film, but not 
necessarily set the tone. I feel like the gas station scene actually sets the tone of the film. And it it also shows us how the plot is reimagined right away. We have guns instead of swords. It's a little bit of we see we see the grit immediately and we fall into this world that's a little more sex drugs and rock and roll and i think we get all of that with the gas station scene it's it's quintessential baz lerman i will say that with how the like again similarly to how uh moulin rouge uh also took way more of its serious and dramatic turns later in the film again like you know act one is always the fun part where he's doing all the setup meeting everybody um yeah it's it's like practically slapstick you know it's got like sound effects (laughs) and shit but it's, that's that's it's a Baz little Lerman. cartoonish. It's yeah. very much part of his style. And it, it 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 helps reinforce the fact that, again, we're talking about children. Like the characters are literal teenagers. I so think it, they're 13 and 14 in the actual. Yeah. World in the actual the real world or like, like, yeah, even gross young. And like, it's only I think the the original play only takes place over maybe four days. You know, yeah. mm-hmm. it's like they meet, they fall in love, they marry tragedy. Kind yep. of that's that's essentially the four days of the story. But but yeah, it's it's it sets it pretty damn well. I, I do think it cues up. It lets you know what you're getting into. Yeah. And I think I think you put it very well saying like this is so Baz Luhrmann because it not only sets the tone of the film, he actually, you know, when you re when we rewatch this and I kind of was watching with an analytical eye, he uses every trick in his playbook in that first scene too. So like everything that makes his style, his style, his signature look and cinematography and how he likes to give the narrative to the people, the viewer, the audience, he does all of that in this small opening scene. So yeah, it, it's, it's, it's setting the tone in the most literal sense of his style as well. Yeah, it, it does not hold back as far as thrusting you immediately. Um, after the, is there a specific word for that like opening introduction? That's because you know most of the prologue is, is yeah just the prologue. Basically, like we're in in this case, it is like the news broadcast because then from then on out, that's well, probably the prologue. Almost the majority. This is the real. This is really. This is actually part of a plot at this point. True. But yeah, what if there's probably some like actual theatrical? Like I'm not I'm not that big of a thespian. I don't know all the stuff about like plays and all this jazz. But anyways, well, yeah, no, it's well, non dialogue it sets... and it sets the entire scene up. Literally, we're in Verona, the warring families. Like it, like we're gonna have tragedy. It is the like. Get well, it does kick the plot off because yeah. it starts like they have already like you. You learn this in the context of the story that they've already been feuding for a long time. But yeah, this is the like the catalyst of that. Papers, all the all the like the news clips and stuff. Um, yeah, after all that stuff is 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 done. Then it goes more into this part. But yeah, it does. It's got like a bit of the slapstick that reminds me of, again, of like certain parts of again, like certain scenes in Moulin Rouge. It, and then, it, of course, it's got like an actual like shootout and like there's there's actual danger, et cetera. Like there's slow-mo stuff like it is. It's he got that utility belt and said, like, <laughs> Baz Luhrmann belt, go. <laughs> I think, you know, I'm glad you brought brought up some of the slapstick elements of it, because I think that is all actually purposeful. Because since they are still using Shakespearean English, and it's really hard to follow if you're not if you're not really having a keen ear to what they're trying to articulate through the the Shakespearean English. I believe that the cinematography, the look of the film, the use of the slapstick, the use of the slapstick and some of the some of how he's directing his actors to act. It's a little cartoonish. Sometimes it's a little silly. It's hyperbolic because here's the point. Uh, It's hyperbolic because 
if you're not following the story through the dialogue, if that's too hard to follow, you can't. It's it's Hitchcockian. You can follow it without any of the words really being spoken. Absolutely. You know what's going on still. I zoned out. I'm not going to lie. I fucking zoned out a couple of <laughs> I straight up was just like, I don't, I didn't like absorb the words, but I still know what's happening. I never felt yeah. lost. Exactly. Yeah, it's, exactly. It's so good of complimenting the narrative in that. Yeah. Because they also get, it's not like stage theatrics where they take their time and enunciate the shit out of it. No, this is like, movies I love, man, they're going fast. Like, blah, 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 blah. Like, but Shakespeare words, like they don't hold back. It's, it's nuts. So it is easy to, to lose some of the dialogue because it is modern speed, like frantically acted Shakespearean English. I have to ask you this because it's never explicitly stated in the film, but every time I would read about the film or do my homework time and time again, they would consider the families to modernize the story in essentially the nineties at the time that these two families were either warring mafia families or just warring business empires, which was it business. There was some security at the pool. I get that. But at the same time, if you're that rich, you're still probably going to have some security like to guard your family, depending on how wealthy you are. So I will say the security guards are the one thing that makes me believe that like, you know, maybe it was more like mafia, but there's literally no other indicator that it is mafia. Exactly. And I think since it's open to interpretation, since I just like dark, underbelly, seedy, you know, characters and storylines and stuff like that. I just want it to be warring mafia families because well, I just think it's cooler in my mind. Guns and like, yes, I guess that like, yeah, maybe back then, even as like just boys, they all ran around 13, 14 year olds playing with swords. But I also feel like maybe that probably wasn't normal. I don't I don't know much about medieval society, but I do feel like I, not everyone ran around with a sword. So therefore, maybe they had to be trained or prepared to protect themselves because it was a like mafia ish thing. And hence, that makes sense just to say that in the 90s, the word would be mafia, that that was the sense if there was implied sword play back in the original. And that, of course, the guns or swords are now guns. So that's that's the thing to the other side of that argument, though, why it might have not just been business because there are there's weaponry involved and there's like death. You know, like, is it really that serious if you're like, I'm going to fucking kill you, bro? Like, <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. like if death wasn't on the table before, I feel like that is a huge step to take. So it, which again, like, OK, then that takes me back in the other direction. It is. It's a massive epic death. Again, death is the is part of the tragedy that propels the plot forward. So it is. It's very hard. I like playing that sort of wishy washy could be both. But I personally I feel a little more like it's it's businessy with how it's portrayed, but it is more fun to think it's mafia. It's a lot more fun to think they're beauties. It's like all you did in the Don. Like he's yeah, he's, you're, they're putting hits on each other and shit right? like that. Now there's a lot of amazing set pieces and scenes that we can explore in this film, and uh, we unfortunately don't have all the time in the goddamn world, so we have to narrow. I wanna. I there was one that stood out to me that I want to hash out with you because I feel like it was kind of the centerpiece of the film and it did a lot to not only there's always that scene in a film where you, you finally are in it, you know, like, okay, I, I am complete. I completely buy into this world. And I believe that scene is the pool scene when they are, he is, he's already found Juliet. He is uh, expressing his love for her. Right. The wherefore. Right. And he okay. proposes to her. And what I found out in just a also in terms of since we have to 
research what happens behind the scenes. I mean, this scene plays out for maybe five to 10 minutes. It's like nothing in the film, but it took 12 days to shoot. And this is when I felt like, I feel like Leo, Leonardo DiCaprio was really giving his 110% from the very beginning when we, when we meet him right away with Radiohead's talk show host. But I was like, I was for a while. I was like, is Claire Danes really right for Juliet for this part? But then I didn't I, feel chemistry between them, to be honest. Well, they famously, I, I wouldn't say hated each other. I, I think they, I think he disliked her or something behind the scenes. I think that there wasn't actual, but unsure of just fear, uh, sheer technical acting ability and skill. This is where I fell in love with Claire Danes as Juliet. I was like, okay, she is, she is her. She's really trying to dig deep and be this character and, and show us in on, on film. And I feel like it really landed with um, how this scene came together personally. Um, disagree. Okay. Uh, it, her, hers, Juliet never clicked. And honestly, ever like ever through the whole film, even never. when she was again, never, I, I not only did I not feel the chemistry between them as characters, but even like in her, like soliloquies, even in her, oh, like where man. she's just speaking to the day or where she's just oh, talking. Oh, we're going to debate. I love oh, it. Oh man. It just did not, it, it just literally felt like even she was just like, okay, I memorized my lines and now I'm reciting them. It didn't feel like acting sometimes. And they're, they're kids. I, I will say also that Leo, I think, got that role because a he was the hotness. The girls, oh, loved he him, was, he was. But because of he, he was, he could cry his ass off. The rest of his acting, I'm not saying he was blowing me away either. But as far as him being able to like fall to his knees and scream and cry in the rain, he was more dramatic and more expressive than Claire was. So I just, I never, I never felt well. Much from I think Claire it's first. so easy. And let's start with Leo since we were just talking about him. I think it's actually kind of easy to do the extreme ends of the acting spectrum so like if you're really really mad and you're screaming and angry and yelling at another character or really really sad and and bawling but i think all of the middle part is the hard part all of the nuance of the like the micro gestures and the little a, a perfect example of this oh my god or like a recent example is fucking uh don't worry darling with harry styles and uh the chick from midsummer like she Lawrence is Yes, she is. She is acting circles around Harry Styles. Like, well, and she's it is, it is two of them, to be fair. Yeah, it is. It is embarrassing how different it is. But that's a perfect example of like, yes, he can do like the really, really he's like screaming in the car, angry or crying his eyes out stuff, because that's extremes of acting is not very technical. It's not very hard. But the little stuff in the middle is really hard. And I feel like that's where Claire Danes was kind of shining, especially when and this is where I wanted to raise you a minute ago. It's like, okay, I'll I'll put in you know a couple more chips to raise you. Let's let's keep this hand going. Is when she fought with her father, I thought was powerful scene. That scene was excellent. That scene was fantastic. When he was like fuck he's like grabbing her by the shoulders and it's just like that accent. That and when she's threatening to kill herself thinking that she has to marry Dave Paris. Oh, Paul Rudd, you beautiful baby. I know. I I had completely forgotten <laughs> he was in this. Like, the fact that... And he's... Talk about slapstick. Like, his acting was so silly. Like, I, it was I, so I, hammy. Is, I don't even think it's acting. I think this is just him being like, hey, I'm... Hammy? Yeah. yeah. I, think, I, I think he just showed up and had the best fucking time he could. And that still means getting a good and performance. This was like a clueless the, era. Yeah, like he was just kind so of up natural and coming. For him. Just him just yeah. being like, hey, I'm Paris. <laughs> like, um, so yeah, hey, I'm, no. I'm Dave. I'm yeah, Dave right. Paris. <laughs> um, 
No, the yes, the scene where the uh, the dad is like confronting her was super intense. And again, like that's a group scene. So I will say that like the the energy was go- is going to feed off of other people. Whereas the acting is reacting kind of thing to an extent. And then a lot yeah. of the energy again, like the dad brought a lot to that scene. That actor again, I that um I can't remember which that actor's real name because he's one of the few people who, whose name I didn't already know. Um, is that it's uh, Paul Sorvino? Paul Sorvino, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so. And then yes, in the other one again, what, are you talking about when she is confronting the um the um the not botanist? What's the fucking word? Um, he's the the priest, the father. Yeah, the priest or whatever. But the guy. Uh, what was the fun word they had for like when you go get like a little potions down at the shop? Oh, an apothecary. Yeah, yeah, apothecary. Yeah, whatever apothecary priest character. Um, right? Is that the one where she's like, "You'll give me something, or else I'll fucking blow my brain." No, no, she was talking. Because that's another good one. That was yeah, another she was talking to scene. the main priest. Yeah, the one you're thinking of is when um, Romeo is getting the poison for himself, thinking that Juliet is actually dead and not didn't fake her death, which actually happened. Right. Okay. But so, so that's where my brain went because that was another good intense scene. But I also feel like that technically just goes back to your point of like the more dramatic stuff is the easier stuff. So therefore, if those are the things you're raising me, it still just kind of goes with like, I think just at that time, Leo might have been a slightly stronger actor for just whatever reasons, because I still, I'm just personally- Well, just, like you know, we love to close circles on our show. To bring it back, though, to the pool scene, I think when she was, the stuff in the middle is there, because it wasn't extreme yelling, crying, I'm going to kill myself, or the other end of the spectrum. It was, you know, it was, like, I'm boy. falling in love <laughs> with you kind of thing. And and I think we felt that as the audience. But not, but not Philip, guys. Just not me. Yeah, yeah. Everybody in the world except for Philip, guys. I'm not the audience, everyone, just so you know, according to Novo. <laughs> now, um, I think this audience. is a good segue to just to talk about the characters themselves, because remember, this was an adaptation and a lot of things changed in this version of the film, including like, as we already joked about, he gave them first names like there was, you know, like there was there was not any first names for the father or mother of each family. It was just Lord and Lady Capulet or Lord and Lady Montague, but it oh, was yeah. Ted and Caroline Montague and Fulgencio and Gloria Capulet. And of course, Paul Rudd's Dave Paris and the, in the actual story, it's just Paris. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I, I like, like that, that aspect. It made a lot of sense. Cause yeah, of course, like we definitely wouldn't call them Lord and like they would have, relatively normal modern first names so right I, I do remember that throwing me off for a moment of being like her name wasn't caroline and then catching myself being like yeah you stupid idiot this is romeo <laughs> plus juliet like they had to give her a name yes it's um <laughs> yeah i think i feel like how caroline? the casting and i feel like caroline? the the reimagining of characters into diff i you know, and this guy is kind of kind of feed into the cinematography, the look of the film, too, you know, with the the grit and the but also the glamour of the film. Like it was a fascinating dichotomy of very two opposing worlds, much like the two opposing families in the film. So there's it just it helps to those characters and that reimagining of the characters really helped to bring the visual aesthetic to life. So let's go ahead and talk about the look of the film. So I'm going to tee you up with one simple statement in that this film oozed style. Everything was stylish and stylized. You know, Verona was essentially 
South Beach, Miami. One part's glitz, color, and neon, and one part grit, sand, and back tattoos. It's <laughs> <laughs> an amazing line. Yeah, yeah, um, I wrote that. Wrote that myself. That's dope. I, I've, I've wrote, I've written a few things in my life. Yeah. What? Dude, yeah, you did a couple oh, times. Well, now we should have a conversation. Um, yeah. I do feel like, and especially with like how much they took advantage of like what I was referred to like as the prologue or whatever, like that introduction thing of like with how much of it is dialogue, but there is that still a bit of like the omniscient narrator here and there. Mm -hmm. Um, Just, you know, for like the purest sake of like, Oh, time has passed or just whatever to make it very clear for these things. Um, And even the like, and that is, yeah, when they really did the thing to push the dichotomy of like being in like, well, I mean, it was essentially like obviously California. Um, yeah. Like how part of it's going to be filthy and part of it's going to be filthy rich. I always thought um, of Verona's, yeah, South Beach, Vince. Miami though. But yeah. What something like that? It yeah, could be yeah, California. Exactly. It it's could like be they Florida. Just, it doesn't matter. Yeah, they literally just like didn't try to hide the fact of where they were, and they were just like, we're obviously going to call it Verona, so who cares? Plus, yeah. like, you know, it feels borderline romantic and Italian-ish, I suppose. Yeah, yeah very much so. But yeah. um, and then yeah, to your point, yeah, I mean, hella stylized, even when they're just doing stuff like the outdoor beach scenes. I mean, you know, like the outfits are all so like just so open shirts on bright florals and some of the hairstyles are like what's his nuts is fucking like, like high hair. contrast yeah. color you know um and then even still really of course, they have, like the costume party i love that talk of, that's probably another scene and that's it of course also out a little decadent bit. party so not only are you at one of the rich people's homes but it is and literally a like it's a sex big drugs ass. and rock and roll yes. again he takes ecstasy to that fucking... scene made me so uncomfortable back in the day. Really? Oh, oh back, back in the, the day. day. I don't okay. Know. Why? Ooh, let's, I just, let's I, learn about I mean, Philip I didn't, again, like, guys. Do, I didn't, hadn't done ecstasy when I saw this movie. So, I mean, yeah, this guy started doing drugs and then like, you know, all the editing and directorial tricks of just being like. It was so foreign. You yeah. Know, like it was still like. This you know, is... I also just, I don't know that I'd seen many other movies. Yeah. More, more movies. Like I hadn't seen that many movies at that point in my life either. That really did a good job of, like I said, I don't, I had uh, Fear and Loathing hadn't really come out yet, had it? Or wait, mm. what year is this again? I feel like, like that's said, still. That's same year but basically too. about as that's hard to watch so exactly so things like that where the people really were like oh the character's taking drugs and you're gonna experience it that was new to me so i still remember i i remembered the nervousness when i was like oh that's right they fucking take like ecstasy and this time around of course like hey i know that nothing bad happens <laughs> well not <laughs> that, not that yet <laughs> not yet this tragedy and i feel like the we can't talk about the look of the film the cinematography without adding in you know all of the ed- elements that is cinematography so let's talk a little bit let's dive a little bit into the sets and costumes editing and effects things like that and i also want to touch on symbolism because there was visual symbol symbols everywhere in the film and going back to your most hated scene in the film the pool <laughs> scene the water no, not is most hated <laughs> i'm kidding no actually i i i again i think i think it actually does a damn good job of of being like of him like hounding her and her being like, no, like I'm telling you I'm into you, like get away, like go home and don't die. Like my dad's going to have you shot. And he's like pestering well, her. Like a, like a light switch goes off when he's like, well, do you want to get married or yeah, right. and she's like, yes, I do. Like tomorrow, let's get married tomorrow. But uh, water is uh, used as a symbol. It, it symbolizes this. It water's everywhere in the film, right? And it, it kind of symbolizes this, what I would call a special gravity between certain characters. Obviously, we see that in the titular Romeo and Juliet. And um, <laughs> I was, before I was writing like 
sub theses and stuff like this. I remember ending the film and thinking, Jesus Christ, Leonardo DiCaprio is literally like wet for half of the movie. Yeah. And I mean that in the literal sense, guys, and not like just the sexy sense. I mean, he is literally drenched in water for half of the fucking movie. Rain scenes, pool scenes, like just splashing water on your face because of ecstasy. Like, yeah, he, he's he's a he's a drippy boy. He's um, a drippy boy. He's got the drip. It's the OG drip. <laughs> Um, oh, that's and that, be yeah, that wet hair look She's too. A drippy boy. Oh yeah, the wet. I feel like part of that was that the aesthetics, the look of them trying to be stylish and cool. Yeah, because you know he was. I think at this point he was already posing for, you know, Versace and you know doing like ads really? for clothing. Even by ninety six, he was such a little geek. He, he was twenty one in this film. No I think shit. people forget that. Yeah. Wow. Claire Danes was 16 and he was 21, but of course, you know. So yeah, editing, that's probably why, like I said, or, it's uh, like, I'll get, I just feel like he had a little more experience under his belt that neither of them. Oh, for sure. Like, again, if like you see interviews of them. As actors. Oh tons. yeah. If you see like interviews back then of these, and I, and I urge you guys to do that. It's so much fun. To, it's a little time capsule, but you could see it in how he would talk to the interviewer. You know, he was, he was a thespian. He took it so seriously at such a young age. And she was just this up and comer. She wanted to be an actress. She's still acting to this day. I think a lot of people forget that, like Homeland and shit. And she's great. And but you could tell that she was a little she was a little green. She was she was a rookie kid coming out of the academy, ready to act her ass off. And she I think she did still pretty well. You know, the other here, let me let me uh tee you up with this question. If I'm not sure how much homework you did, but the other I can't even see this. Oh, I could see this if she was older, but Natalie Portman was originally supposed to be Juliet in the film. I did not. No, I did not know that. That's cool. She was 14 yeah. at the time. And, you know, he was 21. It it, it wasn't it wasn't a good look. Well, and and they knew that. And the she screen already tests. is an extremely petite and just like young looking person. So I'm hurt. 14. But she was in the professional. Like Remember That's Leon? The, the no, professional. absolutely. I'm, it's not her. I'm worried about. But literally, like, if you've well, got the somebody that like Leo, who could technically yeah. at least be like look legal, like an 18 year old, like I, you could not show me 14 year old Natalie Portman and be like, this person like should totally get married and like make babies. I'd be like, absolutely not. There's nothing yeah, fun. Yeah. I romantic don't want to see Romeo and Juliet like, about child. this. This is a child. You yeah, are literally gross. selling to me on how much of a child Juliet was. So please know. Like, and get, the other to, like Claire Danes, like give me somebody who looks like at least a high schooler. I don't know. And then the other one in the running was uh, Sarah Michelle Geller. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, she was, yeah, she, that was her. That I could kind of see it, but, you know, in hindsight, I'm really, I'm still pretty glad they picked Claire Danes. Like, I feel like of, of their choices at the time, because again, we met, we, when we talk about this stuff, I feel like we're still talking about it. We have to talk about it in terms of the business side of filmmaking too. And they wanted, you, you know, just like we joked about, of course they wanted fucking Leo because he was the heartthrob. He was the it boy. Oh, yeah. So they, because they wanted to sell tickets to their film. Like Baz Luhrmann wanted a career. He knew he had to play the game. It's like, okay, I want to make this film. I want to modernize it. I want to make it artistic. But I got to cast someone that people will show up to see. And that's how Leo got cast. And that's why someone like Natalie Portman or Sarah Michelle Geller was in the running. But as far as like just the acting, 
And yes, is the chemistry not perfect? It is. Um, we should say this overall. It 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 is not without its flaws. This film, <laughs> it it's it is it is not flawless. It has its flaws, but uh, again, it's a time capsule for an an artistic reimagining and adaptation of this film. And for what they had and who they had and all of the little elements, I still think they pulled it off quite nicely. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah, with the amount of powerful elements, I mean, when you have that, like the vision that obviously Baz Luhrmann has and now that he's demonstrated it across six like major films. Um, and then even beyond just like having that amount of vision, like again, like the cast and even just the, um, the size of the production. Cause it's one thing if you have the vision for it, interestingly, I couldn't help but sort of feel a little judgy, but I was like, I see the vision, but obviously the quality of the special effects in those like news shots and like the big fake statue that they clearly just photoshopped over LA or Venice or whatever. A lot of superimposition. Like yeah, they used like the basic, look... basic, basics of special no, it's funny effects that, in this film. Yeah, the scale of it was still overall there. Again, like the ball, like the ball dance, or like Halloween, whatever, the, the costume party, like so much of the rest of it oozes with budget that clearly where they took the hit was the cheaper shit like the special effects for the news so again give me the practical that's good he put it in the right places but it was just something that caught my eye this time because you can then also tell that i mean obviously we all know uh especially you and you and i and anyone listening because duh the point of this is like we're discussing a big you know piece of uh important like you know media uh like a phenomenon basically i mean again basically it was just that like who knew what what just what a phenomenon this would be so Baz Luhrmann clearly got his budget for moulin rouge holy shit, was there a lot of money put into that one after the success of this, of just, again, like all those stars aligning, just perfect, perfect, like, yeah, all the things just clicked and, um, yeah, made for quite the memorable experience that legitimately brought Shakespeare to the modern age in like a very, like an incredibly approachable, normal way. And I think we can't talk about the effects, you know? Yes, was it kind of crude and, you know, lower budget, sure, but I think where a lot of his choices, his creative choices shined is with what he became known for, what I will dub, you know, the the Lerman editing style of filmmaking, which is using editing to purposely fast forward and use slow motion, uh, but within quick cuts of the filmmaking. So the invisible special effect we always talk about in our shows is editing and though we saw the Jeez. actual the visual representation with yeah some of the crude effects that he used though i think um i i do have an example of when i think it all came together as almost perfectly it was it came together in harmony even though yeah some of the things were lower budget and crude and things like that i feel like with the Lerman editing and the visual, the practical effects and the the traditional special and visual effects he used, I think it all came together when Mercutio is slain by Tybalt. Dude, the second you fucking started talking about this, that scene came to my head, but I was like, really? Just, yes. Yeah, he Honest stays in the foreground. Romeo runs to the car in the background. We see the superimposition of the storm brewing above them. The wind is bustling and we're ready for this the vengeance that is romeo he is he is gonna run he is going to chase after tybalt and slay him to his death and we and i feel like that scene because it it holds too it doesn't cut away um but it holds but then when we go into the the lerman editing it we're brought into the chase the chase scene and it's just this 
it's the calm before the storm in a way. But then when we hit the storm, it's like, oh man, because that the slang of Mercutio is already powerful, you know, and he curses. It's a, the famous Shakespearean line that he yeah. curses both the houses. And that curse actually does come true when Roman and Juliet eventually die together. And we, um, that's crazy that you're thinking that we're on the same wavelength. It's, it's, it's such Church. a dramatic, I mean, it's the obvious, like sort of peak of the film. I mean, like it sort of obviously stays on its plateau and just like it rides that momentum through the end because it literally kicks all of it off the families like the tensions rocket of course like the the kids then are like oh fuck our families are madder than ever what should we do um and then of course like the plan goes awry it's literally that is like the beginning of the end and yeah it's it should have like that should be the most one of the most important moments i will say too i feel like there's something like almost like supernatural about like Tibbleton, this one, and that like they literally in more than one scene have it so that when he yells, like some sort of explosion happens somewhere. There's like a weird bit of like the foreshadowing. It's again, it's just another way that how Baz is so so damn involved in detailing, and his vision is so precise and awesome that I love that they worked that in. I definitely did not catch that the last time, but uh, it happened. I remember it was twice. I remember while I was watching it the first time around, I was like, I was like, oh wow, cool, that was crazy. The fireworks went off when he yelled. But then they like did it again later, and I was like, "What is happening?" This is when I think I fell in love with villains. Throughout my entire career, and since I was a young lad getting into the arts, I've always been drawn to villains and antiheroes and you know rogues and all these these people. And I think I think the furthest memory I have is falling in love with Tybalt as a character. As soon as he says, and I quote, "What drawn and talk of peace." I hate the word as I hate hell, all Montague's and thee. I was like, whoa, who is this fucking guy? And as much as he is written to be hated, to be the villain, I was so attracted to his character. And I think John Linkwazamo really killed it. As he did damn good. Um, even with his like stupid hair. Like the weird gel curl thing in the front, the like. Well, he's supposed to. He's made to look. You know, he's the Prince of Cats, which is both a Mercutio insult and descriptor. And he is his his the makeup and hair they used for him was cat like. That's why. Kind of. That was the only thing about like the uh, his, his, his that. But yeah, he he did uh, just uh, fantastically again. It, it and you know he clearly got to come back like. Baz clearly had some people that he enjoyed working with because Leo came back for um, Gatsby. The great Gatsby, um, yeah. You know, like Wazamo came back um, for, for immediately after this in Moulin Rouge. Moulin Rouge. With, like also, again, like a pretty decently, like basically starring role, yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, again, there's like really not, there's like that one sort of unknown person, to be honest. There's that one dude who's like all in the beginning of it. I can't, like, he is so forgettable. He just looks like a fucking football player. He just looks like a quarterback. I feel <laughs> yeah. so bad. I, I, again, like, I'm going to be judgy. I'm pretty uh, sure, I'm pretty sure you're talking about Dash. Yeah. My Hawk, who, sure. who plays Benvolio Montague. Yes. yes. Romeo's cousin. He has got that, like, Arnold Schwarzenegger buzz cut. Is that who you're thinking of? Yep. That was the only person I was like, wow, with everybody else that you got in this movie, like, whose friend is this guy? Whose cousin? Like, who pulled that string? <laughs> That is so funny. Am I? I have to double check myself. Nope. I am. I did. I did say the right person. Uh, that's Dash. Um, he did f- fine. I'm sure know? he did his best. I'm just yeah, saying did, that yeah, that that was fine. the that's the only other thing that like just felt kind of odd that that character kind of was felt a bit out weak. of place. Yeah. Because yeah. again, you you really had these other people again. Like Pete Postlethwaite is is awesome. You've you've got Leo starring. Um, but again, I you feel still like have... Harold Harold uh, Perrineau stole the show. Who played Mercutio? I feel no, like... abs- no, I was. Just 
just about he, to get to him because I, I felt was, like he really would steal the he scenes. He crushed it. He yeah, all of his scenes were like about him. Yeah, he he like led when he was there. I I I kind of felt like they really played that um very well with how I don't know, just like what a fucking lovesick little geek that Romeo is. <laughs> and that literally yeah. everyone else is just like, dude, you've got to cheer up. Like, get over yourself. Like, Rosalind's well, like, Rosalind. Nothing. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Rosalind. Who's that? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm, he, he, he crushed again. He, man, he, yeah, that, that was like, I'm a glad we're talking. Him, I'm, I, I'm glad we're talking characters again because obviously that is the, the connective tissue to the entire plot and kind of the, the life force of of the film in a lot of ways and everything is connected to it in different ways and before we tie a bow on this b we have to talk about one of our favorite things at aotb and that's music i want to start with not what you're i know what you're all thinking radiohead is all over this fucking film we'll get there but i liked how they used the music in the dialogue they used one inch pu- one inch punches pretty piece of flesh and they would say that line i'm a pretty piece of flesh or they would sing it to romeo like the music was an integral part of this film like we hadn't seen before we've seen it since but this is like on the in the uh in the great words of mr theodore t buck if we're gonna have a mount rushmore of the best soundtracks of all time i feel like romeo and juliet's from the 90s is on there yeah uh, it's it bangers wall-to-wall bangers it's just good shit um and it's yeah it is interesting that they were able to find such great songs that happened to line up with the very words again it's just that yet another sign of the signature like lerman dedication of like when you look at some director's resumes and you're like interesting they only made this many films and then you go back and understand the scope of it again and you're like yeah duh no shit it took them four years to make that so yeah they they probably searched good and high and low because they still got top again, like everything else, like it's a they had a clearly a good budget. The set pieces were amazing. Obviously, a great cast. They didn't hold back for the music either. They they like they went for it. And like I said, they they were just like special effects. Fuck that budget. That's last. <laughs> Fuck that budget. Yeah, and we are contractually obligated to talk about Radiohead every few months at AOTB, and they used the commissioned talk show host so this was not on an album guys if you're wondering this was just for the soundtrack they use that as the theme for romeo as soon as romeo comes in yes uh the most prolific song about sandwiches radiohead has ever written with the very rare curse word that they never ever use in any other song so that's that's uh, played twice in the film, and no other song is like that. And they actually close the film with Radiohead's exit music for a film. It's literally titled that yeah. off of their album, OK Computer. <laughs> with them come on and break the door down. I also like, I always, I always misunderstood the lyrics as a kid. And I, because everybody was like smoking cigarettes and being so cool in this film, there's a part where he says, um, um, what is it with a something, um, with a, gun oh, you thought and it was a c- pack of cigarettes. It's yeah, and he's talking about sandwiches. Pants yeah. Nova's thing about the sandwiches a moment ago. But, um, yeah. yeah, it's funny hearing him like, it almost sounds like the joke scenes from, um, fucking hangover where the band is like i fucking need your mo-. like the way he oh, emphasizes he's God, like i actually love fucking that. come on and be-. like wow tom getting tom, edgy Woo-hoo. let's uh let's give the good people the rundown we like to do things from top to bottom here so i'm just gonna go over the tracks from top to bottom real quick i've actually been on a 
on a garbage the band kick uh i've been listening to a lot of their old catalog material i just the substance number one crush the nelly hooper mix specifically is an absolute gold standard of 90s uh rock alternative rock music within that genre um so that's the first track on the album number one crush by garbage then it goes to local god by everclear angel by gavin friday Pretty Piece of Flesh by One Inch Punch, as already talked about. Kissing You by Desiree. Whatever I Had a Dream by Butthole Surfos. Oh, God, what a fucking name. Uh, Love Fool by The Cardigans. We forgot about Love Fool, uh, which is... I uh, it's, I it's, did a cover of that in a band one time. It was still so to this fun. day, that is a guilty pleasure song of mine. Love I, when me, I have, love me. Say that you love me. It's a great one. It's, it's a great so little good. pop You can't hit. not bop to that. It's oh, yeah. You want to dance a little bit. You want to sing along fun. every time. It's like and perfect tempo. It's just so chill. And Young Hearts Run Free by Kim Mazel. Mazel. Everybody's Free to Feel Good by Quentin Tarver. Rest in peace. To You I Bestow by Mundy. Already talked about talk show host by Radiohead. Little, little Star by Stina Nordenstem. And You and Me Song by The Wanted. Wannadies. Wannadies? Wannadies? Yeah, Wannadies. Nuts. <laughs> so let's tie a bow on this, B. Uh, why study Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet, Mr. Church? It has so many of the signatures, right, or the hallmarks that we've sort of mentioned, but due to just how stylized and very specifically intentionally used his techniques are, yeah. it will never come anywhere close to being like verbally you know explained you will no one's going to come out of this podcast and in the event that you haven't seen a Baz Luhrmann film be like I get it like it's not possible it's stupid <laughs> Romeo ever go plus Juliet uh, Romeo plus Juliet is uh, technically his uh, <laughs> second film but yeah it's it's him like kind of how we've said in other shows like when you know you like you go back and you like you find out that like they're they're always who they are like all the way back at their first works and it's just I love a lot of the other works of his anyways. So because it's got all of his signature works, this one particularly is great, but it also happens to obviously contain an incredibly important piece of classical literature. So it's kind of a twofer. And interestingly too, that again, none of the rest of his films were like basically not necessarily like written, written by him. You know, like all the rest of them were actually original scripts, right? Not just literally like the exact dialogue from like another book previously or anything that was close to like a poem. So uh, it, it's unique among the works of somebody who is already so, so incredibly unique. You will see a, a Baz Luhrmann film, the first one basically, and the second you fire up a second one, you'll start seeing it all. All the little tricks come out and all the things you're like, oh, there's that type of like- The signature spin. style. Yeah, there's that cool vignette. Like here's a neat montage. Like he's just- you know, those words, of course, you can look them up and understand what they mean, but his use of editing and the the depth to which he plans the entirety of his films, again, including the music and all these things, uh, is relatively unparalleled. Hence, he is in the, one of the higher echelons of like Hollywood directors and found himself with a deserving spot on our list of people that we thought we should bring to you. Couldn't have said it better myself. Guys, there you have it. Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. Romeo plus also, Juliet. Technically, the quote is badass and should have the fullest credits should be given to William Shakespeare. But I will give the movie credit for uh, making me aware of the very awesome uh, the brief little line of um, these violent delights have violent ends. I love that. I love that part. Again, Friar Lawrence is just such a good character. That makes me always think of Westworld, though. 
to this day. I can't. Did you ever get into Westworld? Uh, I tried. It was a, like first two seasons were like fun and all, and then I just fell off it. Like so, there you have it, guys. Romeo plus Juliet, Baz Luhrmann, William Shakespeare, forever from top to bottom. I want to thank you for listening. I want to thank my guest, Lord Church, Lord, Lord of House Church. You can't see the bow that I just took. I'm I'm very in character. But before we go, you know we got a little extra for you, a little icing on the cake, a little cherry on top with what we call the gym of the week. If you're new to the show and don't know what the gym of the week is, where have you been? We've done this like a hundred times now. But if you're new. Here it is. We like to talk about something here at the end of our shows that doesn't always fit into the scheme of the episode, show, or topic, but it may be on our radar in the last day, week, or month. So we want to give it to you guys so you guys can dig deeper. Before we get there, let's talk about their sponsors. Today's gems are brought to you by Zencaster. Zencaster is our go-to tool for remote podcast recordings. What's great is that you can record separate audio and video tracks, and it's all backed up on a secured cloud so you never lose your hard work. Even better, it's easy to use, and there's nothing to download. So go to zen.ai, that's Z-E-N dot A-I slash art of the beholder, or just use promo code art of the beholder and get 30% off your first three months with the pro account. Now back to the gems. Mine is um, two films that... When I rewatched this, it made me think of some other films I was getting into at the time, and I thought that would be good gems for our audience if you haven't seen these, which is 1998's Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels Mm -hmm. and 2000's Snatch, both by Guy Ritchie, who was an up-and-coming filmmaker like Baz Luhrmann at the time. And um, a game that I've... This is another oldie, but a goodie. Uh, a video game. It's called Super Meat Boy. <laughs> I don't know why I decided <laughs> to pick this up again. But it kind of captures the beauty of 90s era Nintendo video game platforming with modern controls and consoles. It's still 2D. You just get to the end to, of the level. That's the whole point, Mario style. But there's pits and obstacles. And there's a little bit of plot thrown in there for for good favor but it's a lot of fun and i think you guys will really enjoy it heck yeah um i I had a movie at the ready and um you mentioning um a video game did remind me that uh i was playing a fun souls like the other day called timesia uh it is currently included in like the ps plus catalog and for all i know that means it might be available to you xbox folks as well fun fun shit especially if you liked bloodborne it's the most like that one in that it's like kind of quick and gothic um the movie I'm going to bring up is the 2010 remake of The Karate Kid. Um, So Karate Kid 2010 with Jackie Chan and Jaden Smith. Surprisingly awesome reboot. There you have it, guys. Check it out. And if they want to get a hold of you, how do they do that? Shoot up a flare. Um, I have a website. (laughs) Turns out, um, philipchurch.tech. And Philip has one L in it. That's how you can get in touch with me. There you go, guys. Check it out. If you like that, you can always follow us at novadayproductions.com you can follow at underscore nova underscore day and nova day media if you'd like to reach out and be on the show you can reach out to us at novadaymedia at gmail.com don't forget to like subscribe do all the things and until next time we'll see you in the next one so be good to each other and as always good luck and god speed we love you art of the beholder is brought to you by novo day productions created and hosted by novo day and the novo day collective facebook.com slash novo day media at Novo Day Media on Twitter and Instagram. Music by A Company, facebook.com slash acomusic123, aco on Spotify. Logo designed by Tom Justice, J-E-S-T-U-S, of thejusticecompany.com, and executively produced by Clayton Anderson. All rights reserved.